0: Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho, by the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
1: They do not need our time wasted on a bill that speaks to this. Are you hearing me?
2: We brought this complaint to protect the integrity of the Idaho House of Representatives. The Idaho House of Representatives existed long before we arrived, and it will be here long after we leave. But history will judge us by the actions today.
3: Accusations of sexual assault led to a contentious ethics hearing and the resignation of a freshman lawmaker. Tonight, we discuss the fallout. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho reports. This week, Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News, Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press, and Ruth Brown of Idaho Reports join us to discuss this week's ethics hearing and resignation of Representative Aaron Von Ellinger. But first, the Senate Education Committee kicked off the week by considering a House bill that would ban social justice curriculum or any programs that would require students to subscribe to the belief that one race, sex, or ethnicity is superior or inferior to another. The bill was the result of concern over critical race theory discussions in public schools and higher education institutions. Critics of the bill said there is no proof that this is a widespread issue in Idaho and no complaints have been reported to the State Board of Education.
1: We cannot compel students these days to do anything. We can't compel them to put their phones away. We cannot compel them to quit talking while the teacher is talking. We cannot compel them to study for tests. We cannot compel them to show up for school. We cannot compel them to do anything. What makes you think that we can compel them to believe something? It's hard for my students, my kids, and I am flummoxed that I would have to stand before you now and ask you not to sanction schools based on misinformation, false narratives, and a tragic misunderstanding of how schools and educators actually teach in general. But mostly I thought about this moment of how I would teach my kids. As a perennial teacher, I think about the lesson in life, claim, evidence, reasoning. The new section of this bill titled Dignity and Non-Discrimination, which no one would agree, disagree with those tenets, is your claim. It cites the potential use of critical race theory and the dangers of sectarianism in school. Now the reason, reasoning connects your evidence to your claim. And I feel like what we're missing here, chairman and committee, is the evidence. From the supporters of this bill, we've heard some anecdotal reports and statements of hearsay. School boards, though, have not come to you with help over this problem. Um, Our State Board of Education has not reported that they've received not even one complaint. The committee
3: ultimately advanced the legislation and the Senate passed it later that day. On Wednesday evening, Governor Brad Little signed the bill prompting the House to pass three education budgets on Thursday. We'll have more with Kevin Richard later in the show. But that news was eclipsed this week by a tumultuous House ethics hearing on whether Representative Aaron Von Ellinger acted in a way unbecoming of the House of Representatives after accusations he raped a 19-year-old House intern and asked other women who work at the state house out on dates. The hearing was not a criminal trial, though the Boise Police Department is investigating the allegations. Von Ellinger said he and the intern did have a sexual encounter but man- maintained that it was consensual. And and that he broke no rules in pursuing dates with other women who worked at the Capitol. We've chosen not to air the most graphic and disturbing comments from the hearing, but we want to warn viewers that some remarks may still be upsetting for some.
2: We brought this complaint to protect the integrity of the Idaho House of Representatives, not only of those who serve here today, but also of every person who has ever been elected or will be elected to the Idaho House of Representatives. My
4: responsibilities as a legislator are to uh, namely represent the constituents of my district uh, and make the best decisions um, as far as voting, uh, implementing policy, Uh, eliminating policy uh, as I possibly can as a state representative for my constituents.
0: Do you believe that legislators are held to a higher standard than the general public? Yes. And what is that standard?
4: Well, um, that uh, representatives should uh, be extra careful in following the law and that uh, that's pretty much all i i I, i think representatives just have a duty to do the best job they can for their constituents and they're held to the standard that uh that their constituents put upon them um I think it's important for legislators to not be outbreaking the law. And uh, to me, that's the most important um, aspect of being a representative and being uh, extra polite and courteous uh, to members of the public, um, just things along those lines. To your knowledge, have you violated any written or properly codified or enacted rules, policies, procedures, or laws relating to the allegations which have brought us here today? Uh, no, I absolutely have not.
0: Did you tell Representative Von Ellinger that the sexual contact was unwanted? Yes. Did you tell him you did not want to do the things he was going to do? Yes. Did you tell him to stop? He said no. My no was enough. Did you say other things that indicated no? Multiple multiple different reiterations. I even tried to just convince him to not. The lobbyist texted me early that morning and uh, wanted to meet as soon as I could when I came in. So we met in my office. Um, She relayed to me two different incidents. The first incident was during the special session. And apparently there was it, it was after the session was over in the evening and there was a get together and she was there with several others and representative von ellinger and she uh, went to the bathroom apparently and he followed her to the bathroom and uh, waited for her to come back out and then um suggested that perhaps they could spend some more time together did she tell you how that made her feel she was very uncomfortable
3: after testimony, the Ethics Committee adjourned for the day, reconvening Thursday morning to deliberate. The committee unanimously voted to recommend censuring Representative Von Ellinger without pay effective immediately and also said they would support expulsion.
5: The representative, an elected state representative, engaged in a sexual relationship with a student intern. The criminal court system can determine if rape occurred But I hold no doubt that this relationship was inappropriate. I'm not persuaded by the ad nauseum repetition of whether a specific policy exists. Common sense and basic morality dictates that an elected representative should not entertain a relationship with a student intern, regardless of who initiated the relationship.
0: Through hours of interviews and investigation into the original complaints, the committee has established that the representative has a pattern of dating, attempted dating, and sexual relationships with subordinates in the Capitol, and concerns serious serious enough from a lobbyist that she spoke with a member of House leadership about it. Yet yeah, the testimony before the committee was quote I don't I'll admit I don't date a lot, and when I do. I try to make sure it's someone I have a connection with. I'm not a person that goes out on a date every week or anything like that. Yet we have two witnesses before this committee that testified under oath that in early March, after a handful of inconsequential or non-substantive conversations, he initiated two dates with women he had only recently met,
2: which led to sexual activity. The other question I asked is, was this an isolated incident? Or was there a predatory pattern? There was indeed a predatory pattern that was established. In the special session of August 20th, Representative was warned to be careful. So, I mean, this is Representative Von Elger speaking. So, I mean, if that's the way you want it, I'll never bother you again. Yeah, I hope you'll reconsider and at some time and consider giving me another chance. This is after he had testified very clearly, Mr. Chairman, that he told the committee he had no intent of dating this person. This was going to be an isolated event. He had found some things out, but yet we have contrary evidence to the contrary. That was a direct, you call it, misstatement. In my in my worldview, that's a lie.
3: Later that day, Von Ellinger resigned, maintaining that he did nothing wrong and broke no house rules. If you need advice or resources concerning sexual assault, you can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline, available 24-7 at one 800 656 Four six seven three. Joining us today for the pundits we have Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News, Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press and Ruth Brown, producer of Idaho Reports. Ruth, I want to start with you. You were in the Lincoln Auditorium for both days of the hearings. Can you talk to me about the mood in the room?
0: Yeah, it was uh, tense the whole day. I would say there were lawmakers present who were taking it very seriously and were very concerned. There were other Lawmakers who, I think, largely because they support von Ellinger and don't believe the accusations that are being made, they were they were laughing in the room, um, and uh, there were audible sighs as uh, you know the defense spoke or committee chairs uh, spoke. But I do think. The room was relatively tense, especially when uh, the victim testified.
3: And and Betsy, the committee itself, made up of five members—two Democrats, three Republicans—they took this very seriously, as we heard in their remarks earlier in the show.
6: They sure did, and they were unanimous. I think it's really notable that legislators from all different parts of the political spectrum, um, House members from all different parts, and uh, were so united and unanimous on this point, and that the House Republican leadership unanimously brought the complaint to the committee. I think that the outcome of this process showed that the vast majority of the Idaho House really condemns his conduct and thought something horrible happened here that was way outside the pale, and that has really, Past those few legislators who were still supporting um, this representative, now former representative, simply because he's their political ally way out on a limb.
5: And I think that tone was set very early by the chair of the committee, Sage Dixon, and also by uh, Brent Crane on the committee. I mean, here you are talking about two staunch conservatives who I think were probably the most forceful and the most... Uh, most aggressive in pushing back against uh, Von Ellinger's attorney, and really trying to keep this a hearing on ethics. I mean, it was very clear from the beginning, watching those two committee members in particular, but all five committee members, ideology was checked at the door, as it should be in a case like this.
3: Ruth, do we know yet if, of course, Representative Von Ellinger resigned before the House as a whole could take it up. Do we know if the committee had the votes to expel von Ellinger?
0: We don't. Um, they recommended, of course, that they censure him and suspend him, uh, effective immediately, but within three hours he uh, resigned. So whether or not it would have made it, I I don't know. I do think uh, the chairman and Representative Crane did an excellent job of keeping keeping the subject matter to ethics and that this was not a criminal trial. And so um, I think they were trying to uh, protect the victim in a sense, but uh, whether or not that was effective, I don't know.
6: Now, it would have taken a two-thirds vote of the House to expel mm-hmm. Representative Von Ellinger, but it would only have taken a majority vote to censure him. And the censure motion that passed the committee unanimously included conditions, including basically ejecting him from the legislature for the remainder of his term without pay and with a substitute to be appointed to represent his legislative district. And um, with him vacating his capital office immediately. So I think even if there were not two-thirds support for expulsion, he would have been effectively expelled if only a majority supported that. And, and based on the facts that came out, the really troubling information that came out during this hearing, I would be very surprised if they weren't able to muster that.
5: I mean, I think what what came through very quickly in the hearing was that this is a pattern of behavior, and I think that really, resonated with the members of the committee, and if it had come to a House vote, I think that would have been persuasive probably to members of the House as well.
3: Yeah, obviously there are so many serious concerns that came out during the testimony, but there are also um, less less of a serious concern, but still something at play here. How might this worsen the divide within the GOP caucus?
5: I think that's a really interesting and open question I mean this is a this is a we're in the 110th day of the legislative session today we go into 113 on on Monday tensions are already high tempers are already short Uh, how this factors into that mix it's really hard to say but it can't make things much easier
6: I think that The House Republican caucus has been very divided for some time, and those divisions have only grown this year. And we have seen kind of the the dissident group that that votes against all budgets for the most part, things like that, grow and have more influence to the point that it can sometimes sway votes on the floor. And I think that we've seen those numbers kind of grow and drop and grow (laughs) and drop. I can't help but think that this incident, if basically the, the litmus test to get into the dissident group is that you have to support Representative Von Ellinger's behavior will cause those numbers to drop.
0: I think it's worth note that uh, the defense, when they called witnesses, almost all of the individuals they called forward to testify were uh, members that are a part of that dissident group that, uh, that Betsy's referring to.
3: Betsy, do you think that one of the results of this very painful, very public ethics hearing might be a shift in the culture at the Idaho State House?
6: Well, I think that's the stated intention of the leadership. Um, The culture of the Idaho State House was never supposed to include Um, elected officials hitting on every woman in the building, young people, employees, staff, and so on. That has never been what was supposed to be a part of the accepted culture there. And Representative Von Ellinger's defense was, well, there's no specific rule that says, I can't date anybody I want in this building, so therefore I can do it. And I thought Representative Wendy Horman had a particularly pertinent comment about that in in the second day of the ethics hearing, when she said there's no house rule against poisoning another person, but this has poisoned all our reputations.
3: I, I think. I guess I'm thinking about some of the um, some of the incidents that were noted. About von Ellinger's pursuit of other women, who were not the 19-year-old intern. You know, there are so many legislative luncheons and after-hours socials at which people drink alcohol. That, that and dining is a normal part of this legislative culture, and there's something to be said about having access to those lawmakers that put some people at a disadvantage if they're not comfortable drinking, if they're not comfortable wining and dining with lobbyists, if they can't be out after hours because they have young families. Do, do you see that dynamic changing anytime soon, Kevin?
5: I, you know, I don't really know. I mean, I and, and I don't really know how that culture has already been changed just by the virtue of the pandemic, just by the realities of uh, of a pandemic that has changed the way we all behave and interact.
3: I. I, I wanna talk about um, the education budgets, um, which is one of the going home issues that we have been keeping an eye on. Um, three of those budgets passed Thursday after Von Ellinger's resignation. That news was kind of eclipsed by how serious the ethics hearing was, but, but it is a big moment, finally passing the House floor this session. Um, Kevin, what's left to do?
5: What you saw on Thursday was the undercard. These were three, they're large budgets. They're part of the K-12 budget. That's taken collectively the biggest budget of them all. But these were fairly non-controversial budgets. The showdown is still going to be the higher education budget, and it's still impossible to handicap what happens with the higher education budget. When when sponsors present a higher ed budget in the next few days, and presumably they're going to present a budget and want it to pass, unlike the first budget when... The sponsor said, "Kill this budget. Let us start over again." It's a hard road to hoe to get 36 yes votes on this budget because the four Democrats in JFAC voted against this budget in committee. So, if the 12 Democrats in the House vote against it, that's that's 12 votes. So now you've got to get 36 votes out of that Republican caucus and this this dissonant, this hardline group within the within the GOP that is probably wanting much deeper cuts in this budget that are gonna cue to the Idaho Freedom Foundation's unsubstantiated claim that this is a $20 million social justice apparatus that's being funded in the higher education institutions. If the hardliners vote no, and the twelve Democrats vote no, it's really tough to get 36 yes votes in the House.
6: I, I don't think we can discount the impact of House Bill 377, and that's the bill that was passed after many, many iterations on policy in education regarding critical race theory and so forth, not only in the K through 12 public schools in Idaho, but also on all college and university campuses. That bill has passed and been signed into law by the governor in really remarkably quick time, which um, certainly appears designed to ease the way for the passage of both the education budgets and the higher ed budget. The higher ed budget includes a two and a half million dollar cut to what is identified as social justice programming. And the governor in his his message about why he signed House Bill 377 expressed um, great concern that there is no evidence that that's something that's going on on our campuses. But I think that we're hearing quite a bit of talk from more moderate legislators saying, we need to pass our education budgets, fund the schools, fund the universities, that's our job as legislators, and if this is what we have to do to get it through, we'll do it. So they've done it. If they can't pass them now, I guess they never leave. They just keep arguing all summer. And if they
3: do that, there is the potential for a partial government shutdown. We saw reports this week from both Keith Keith Riddler of the Associated Press, Clark Corbin of the Idaho Capital Sun, that there's a real chance that state agencies won't be able to start paying or keep paying their employees if they can't get a budget together.
5: It's a legitimate concern and it's already a concern no matter what happens with the rest of the legislative session. It really comes down to timing, it comes down to the Constitution that in effect, bills, laws don't go into effect until 60 days after the end of the legislative session. Well, guess what? Come next week, we are within 60 days of the new budget year. So there, there's the question, right? So. You know, will these budgets go into effect July 1st? Will agencies be able to pay their, their employees, and potentially, you know, does that have on-the-ground impacts? I mean, you know, Clark Corbin's story from r- earlier this week said, you know, this could affect first responders. It could affect, affect whether state troopers can be out on, uh, out on patrol. I mean, those are essential government services that people would notice if they were not you know, if they were not in effect in, in force
3: full disclosure, Idaho Public Television, of course, is a state agency. Um, Betsy, I, I, I want to ask you about other potential going home issues. We still haven't seen a transportation bill pass, both the House and the Senate. We still haven't seen um, property tax relief. What are you hearing about some of these other going home issues?
6: So both the transportation funding bill and the big income tax but cut bill are on the Senate's calendar, but have been held with all these negotiations going on about the budget. But what about property taxes? Going into this session, we heard that was a top priority for many legislators, for citizens, for local governments across the state. That bill hasn't even been introduced. And from what I'm hearing, it will be introduced possibly early this next week. Um, And we're talking about the homeowner's exemption. We're talking about the circuit breaker. And we're talking about elements of Senate Bill 1108, which was killed narrowly in the Senate to put some limits on local government spending. These are significant matters um, and it will be apparently handled very quickly at the last minute, if the last minute is coming.
5: Also unresolved though is the debate over emergency powers and you have the Senate is still poised to take up a vote on a veto override uh, that that the House has already executed. That vote has been put on hold really all this week. It could come up on Monday. That's another big unresolved issue.
3: And on on top of all of this, as you said, we still have these lingering thoughts about those emergency powers. If they do um, fail to override the veto, are we going to see another attempt? at trying to curb um, Governor Little and future governors' powers in states of emergency.
5: Well, you have Jason Monks as uh, one legislator saying that this is an important issue that he wants to see resolved before before the session. I insurance. think we heard He's the same saying, thing yeah.
6: just today from Senator Chuck Winder, that that's on his going home list. I I would anticipate that there would be negotiations between the legislature and the governor to come up with something that might be acceptable to both branches of government, but thus far that hasn't happened the entire session. Uh,
3: Ruth, earlier this week, we also saw, you know, wh- while they're passing education budgets, the House also killed a $40 million ARPA appro- appropriation, American Rescue Plan Act funds that would have funded COVID testing in public schools. And it wasn't necessarily a close vote. I, how do you read that as far as how the House might approach future ARPA appropriations that come before the, the legislature?
0: Uh, Well time will tell with that. Uh, There was a lot of discussion over that bill regarding uh, the COVID testing is what would keep children in school and um, obviously that's been a major concern for a lot of the lawmakers is how do we keep kids in school Uh, and theoretically testing could have been an option for that. Uh, But as far as I guess the take on how they'll approach other ARPA funds, they definitely want to have a say in it.
6: Uh, One thing that was thrown out in that debate was from Representative Tammy Nichols of Middleton who claimed falsely during the debate on the House floor that children cannot carry the virus. Well, I think everyone knows that's not true. Nevertheless, that did appear to sway votes in that debate. Um, I thought that was a very surprising vote. Um, I think it's possible that those funds will not come back. I don't know what the schools will do about COVID testing. And that bill was completely voluntary, both for the school districts that participate and for private schools that were allowed to apply for the funds and for the students and teachers who would be tested. Parental consent would have been required. The House said no after hearing these arguments.
5: After the Senate voted 26 to three to pass it. It
0: was, go ahead. Oh, please Ruth. It was surprising to me because there was a parental uh, consent um, aspect to it. I understand that a lot of Idaho parents were concerned about vaccines, and uh, of course this is a measure that would include parental consent to test children. but
3: It also strikes me that it wasn't just about the vaccines, or sorry, the, the testing and the concern about schools, but there's also a big resistance among House Republicans, especially on accepting federal funds. They call it a mortgage against our grandchildren. And We have about a minute left, Kevin.
5: That came up over and over in debate yes. this week. And, and Ron Nate, the Republican from Rexburg, was saying this repeatedly on the House floor. ARPA is piled on federal debt, it's gonna be paid off by our grandkids, and pointing out that uh, the the four members of the congressional delegation all voted against ARPA, as did, you
6: know. Nevertheless, uh, it was Governor Little who first used that phrase, I think, in reference to ARPA, and he said that this will be debt for our grandchildren, but if we don't accept it, the debt will still be incurred and that money will be sent to other states. So if our grandchildren have to pay off the debt, they should at least get some of the benefit. That was his argument to accept like the, the funds.
5: Like the $40 million for COVID testing. That money doesn't go away, it just goes elsewhere.
6: All right, Kevin Richard of Idaho Education
3: News, Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press and Ruth Brown of Idaho Reports. It's so good to have you all here in person. Thank you so much for watching and we'll see you next week.